I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the little book of Haggai. We're continuing to look at a text from Messiah, the work composed by George Frederick Handel, with selections by a man by the name of Jennings. And he made some really great selections. And so the next uh, portion in Messiah is taken from verses 6 through six and 7 of Haggai. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 so that uh, you have the uh, sort of the whole context here for these, these verses that we'll look at. Haggai is set in the time uh, of the uh, Restoration. After the exile, I should apologize to the young people for some of this being redundant. We've been uh, studying Haggai and uh, Zechariah and, and uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and uh, young adult Sunday school, so some of this is going to be repetition for you. Uh, but uh, just to bring all the rest of us up to speed here, the setting is Jerusalem, not long after the Jews have been allowed to return to their homeland by Edict uh, by Cyrus, the uh, uh, emperor of Persia, king of Persia. Uh, the city is still in a state of dissolution. Uh, its uh, city walls are so important to the safety of inhabitants of a city at that time uh, remain broken down from when they've been destroyed by the uh, massive armies of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And in fact, the uh, temple itself lies in ruins. The foundation has been relayed, but nothing much has happened since then uh, because of opposition from the uh, people in the area. Uh, in the absence of the Jews from their homeland, uh, Assyria first imported people from other countries into the northern part known as the Kingdom of Israel, and they intermarried, so you have the, uh, the people that are known in New Testament times as the Samaritans. They're of mixed ethnic ancestry, Gentile and non-Gentile. Uh, and even in the uh, southern area, other uh, peoples have, have drifted into this area. And so uh, the, the Jews are more or less surrounded by people who are hostile to them. They're also small in number. Uh, you all hear them referred to in the text as a remnant. Uh, only a small fraction of the Jews who, who were in exile in Babylon, later uh, Persia, the Persian Empire, uh, determined to come back. Only a minority. And, and so they're, they're really just a, a small, uh, small fragment of the Jewish people there in Jerusalem. It is... Uh, it is a very dangerous situation for them. And as you can imagine, they, they're rather demoralized. Okay, they, they attempted to start rebuilding the temple, but the threats of their near neighbors led them in fear to, uh, to drop that. Uh, and so we, we find them in the book of Haggai in, in, in dire straits. And not only have they failed to do what God had commanded them to do in terms of rebuilding the temple, uh, they've, they've not had good crops. Uh, they're financially in hard place. And so they come uh, 
we come to them in uh, Haggai in a, in a really bad way. Now, Haggai's already spoken to them as we jump into this uh, text. This is the third of five messages that Haggai gives to the people. And perhaps because it's the central one in that piece, remember in Hebrew literature, oftentimes that the key portion is in the middle of a text. Uh, it's possible that, that this one is to get our special attention. Uh, it, it's, it's also pivotal in terms of, of where it comes in the chronology of the experience of the people as a whole. And so let's uh, hear this word too this remnant of Jews in Jerusalem, but let's hear it as well as a message for us today. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say... Who is left among you who saw this house and its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. In the weeks immediately prior to the prophecy of Haggai in our text, if you a glance back at chapter 1, you'll see that the Jews had gathered in Jerusalem for the feast of the seventh month, uh, feast of trumpets, which marked the beginning of the new year, day of atonement, which you may recall is a solemn day of confession and reconsecration of the temple, and the seven-day feast of booths or shelters, which commemorated Israel's deliverance from uh, slavery in Egypt. So all, all these... Uh, all these should have been times of wonderful joy and fellowship together. But as I mentioned before, this is, a, this is a shaken people gathered together. This is nothing like uh, that time years and years ago when at the conclusion, really on the commemoration of this very day, the seven-day feast of the booths and shelters that Solomon dedicated along with the people, that magnificent structure, which was the first temple. The Jews of Haggai's day probably, probably had that in mind as they came together. And what a contrast with their 
their situation. They've lost their independence. They're subject to hostile government. Much of their homeland has been possessed by people of other ethnic groups, many of them, as I said, hostile toward the Jews. The oldest Jews here in this remnant uh, possibly remember some of the prosperity of Judah before its fall, and the present conditions seem to them pathetic. Even the younger ones would have been, would have been conscious of a, of a contrast between the presumably well-established and and well-built homes they had in, in Babylon, later Persia, the work that they had there. It's, but now they've come back here. They're, they're, they're like settlers in the land now without probably many of the conveniences they had before. So in the midst of, of this state, God sends a message to the people through Haggai the prophet. From a human perspective, the survival of this Jewish remnant is, is doubtful, much less the idea of reestablishing their nation. And you notice in Haggai's first words in chapter 2 that we read here, uh, beginning at verse 2, uh, well, notice first he speaks to, he addresses three Three parties, Zerubbabel, who's the secular governor, we could say, Joshua, the religious leader, the spiritual leader, and the remnant of the people, perhaps. He, all three of those are mentioned to give us a sense of the unity of the people at that point. But look at his question in verse 3. Actually, it's a series of three rhetorical questions. There's a lot of threes in this short passage. So he addresses these three parties with three questions. And notice they, they frankly acknowledge the dire states they're in. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? And of course, to see that, to remember that rather, is to have the question, how do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? Haggai is being very frank about the people's condition. And of course, this is God being very Frank, with the people through Haggai. The reality that they see when they look at their lives is not a good one. It's probably hard for them to think of their lives in any terms other than suffering and hardship and difficulty. I'm sure you've been through times like that yourself, where, where it just seemed like you know, every day was a struggle. Uh, like Job, you, you couldn't wait for the day to be done so that the night would come, and then at night you couldn't wait for the night to be over so the day would come. God's people sometimes are in tough places, hard places. You would think that, uh, you would think Haggai, God would have inspired Haggai to get their minds off their circumstances. And that's what the world tries to do for you, right? You got problems, let me entertain you. It'll distract you. And so a lot of people spend their lives running after distraction after distraction because they don't want to face the reality of the difficulties in the, that face them. Or maybe uh, he could have taken the tack of uh, trying to help them see the bright side. Okay, you probably had somebody do that 
for you. Sometimes when you're feeling really down, they, they, they start telling you all the things you have to be thankful for. <laughs> Usually you get irritated at that, right? <laughs> you don't really want somebody to tell you the bright side. You know, I could have said, look, I mean, at least you're back, back in your homeland. Okay. Could be worse. But he doesn't do that. He starts right where they are, and, and, and he acknowledges the difficulty of their circumstances. And then he shifts gears rapidly in verse 4, doesn't he? And you're expecting him to maybe analyze this bad situation that they're in. If you get them to reflect on it or, you know, somehow come to terms with it. But look at what he says. He acknowledges how difficult their situation is. And then in verse 4, beginning in verse 4 and 5, be strong, be strong, be strong. There's another three there. Work. Fear not. Be strong. Isn't that a little, a little heartless? I mean, the problem is that they're not strong. Okay, they're an insignificant people. They don't have power. They don't have wealth. They're barely making ends meet. Not sure whether the crop is going to come in for the next year. And and guy's telling them, God says, be strong. Now, he is not telling them, pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps. Okay. I mean, you know that's impossible to do anyway. Uh, Perhaps as a kid, you tried to do that. You ever try to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? (laughs) If you wear boots. Uh, it can't be done. The, the solution is not to look within themselves. Now, that's another worldly solution. You're in tough times, you just need to grit your teeth a little harder. You just need to be more dedicated. You just need to, you just need to have confidence in yourself. You know, it gives you all this stuff that, that looks inside. And don't you sometimes, isn't your response sometimes when, when you hear that message, I, I don't have it. If I had the strength, I wouldn't be in this circumstance. Okay, if I had the power, I, I wouldn't feel like I do. Why are you telling me to look within myself? Well, Haggai doesn't do that, does he? He tells them to be strong three times, be strong, be strong, be strong, work, for I am with you. There's the key phrase you want to see here. Now, this is not the first time Haggai said this. Look back in chapter 1 at the message that he spoke there. His first message had been one of judgment. You're not being obedient to God. You're supposed to be building that temple, and you're not. You've let people intimidate you. You've let the four powers of the world around you dictate to you. You're not doing what God told you to do in rebuilding the temple. And look at the response of the people 
in verse 12. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as Yahweh their God had sent him, and the people feared Yahweh. There's the right response when we're convicted of our sin, right? It, uh, I pointed out to the young people in our class that we don't often see this response to the prophets. Many times the people turn a deaf ear to them, or worse, they persecute them. But isn't it remarkable, wonderfully remarkable, that they're unified in obedience and fear of the Lord. That's really great to read, isn't it? You know, the fear of the Lord is a good thing. For sinners to fear the holy God is, in fact, eminently reasonable. And it makes perfect sense because a holy God must judge unholiness. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and we might say that the lack of a fear of God is the root of foolishness. So it's a good thing that they fear the Lord here, that they realize this holy God gave us a command, and we failed to do it, and we rightly deserve his judgment. And so they respond in Repentance that's implied by the obedience, I think. They repent of their inaction and choose obedience, and obedience with fear. And it's in that context, then, that Haggai says, for the first time in the book, verse 13, I am with you, declares Yahweh. The Lord there is Yahweh. The name that God gave to his covenant people, you'll notice how that predominates in the, in the passage that we read as well. I am with you, he says. And it goes on in verse 14 to say, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They reunited in their repentance, in, in pursuing obedience, in fear of the Lord, and so he strengthens them with his spirit. And that's the key to our passage, isn't it? Go now back to our passage to verses 4 and 5. Be strong, be strong, be strong, work, for I am with you. And he repeats the same idea in different terms. Verse 5, according to the covenant that I made with you, it was that covenant that God revealed himself by the name Yahweh. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. I have not withdrawn my spirit from my people. That's what he's saying. God does not lose those who are truly his. Remember, Jesus affirms that. He says, no one and snatch my people out of my hand. I am with you. There's the source of our strength. 
God tells these people to be strong, but he gives them the strength. Okay, God doesn't tell you to do something you can't do. He, he, he is not like many people. They demand stuff from you you can't give. It's really hard to please people, isn't it? They're always changing their expectations or they're criticizing what you do. God's not like that. God calls you to do something. He, he equips you to do that. And so they, they can be strong. They can work because God is with them. Grab hold of that. We want to come back to that a little bit later. So work, do that work that you've committed yourself to. Of course, in the context, that's the work of rebuilding the temple. But I think we can broaden that. You've got a work to do. You've got a calling to do. Calling today, calling tomorrow, the next day. God always has a calling for his people. So you're called to work. You're called to fear not. Fear not. Now, that's an interesting contrast with what we saw in chapter 1, isn't it? There we read that they feared God. Now Yahweh is saying, fear not. Is he contradicting himself? <laughs> well, of course he's not. Here is the wonderful truth that when you fear God, you need fear nothing else. That's what he's saying. See, they've been living their lives in fear. They've been intimidated by all the people around them. They hadn't been living up to the calling that God had given them because they were afraid of pressure from other people. And so they started turned inward and started living just for self, building their own houses instead of the house of the Lord, trying to do their own thing and, and being frustrated in that. But when the fear of God took hold of their hearts, now they have courage. What a wonderful contrast that is. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. And then to, to further encourage them in that, look at verse 6 and following. This is the part that uh, Genesis chose for Messiah and that Messiah put to, to music very wonderfully. God talks about his shaking. Yet once more in a little while, it's, my, it's, 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 right, it's right at the door. Okay, it's going to be no time. Okay, now it may seem like a long time to you. But it's just going to be a little while. I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, I will shake all nations. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the God who shakes things up. I'm sure that these words brought to mind for that remnant of Jews that first time that they, as a people, encountered God at Mount Sinai. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. 
And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. When God comes, he shakes things up. He is the God of power, of strength. That's conveyed even in this, this name that you notice repeated over and over again. Six times, I believe it is, if I recall correctly, in this text in rapid succession. Yahweh of hosts, that's Yahweh of armies, Yahweh of warriors. And of course, when we think of that name, we realize that the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of armies, actually is the one who fights for his armies. He does the fighting. The power is his. Psalm 68 uses that same language. O oh God, when you went out from before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked. Psalm 77. The crash of your thunder was in the world when your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Judges 5, the song of Deborah and Barak after the victory that God had given them. The earth trembled when God marched out. The earth reeled and rocked. Jeremiah on the fall of Babylon. The land trembles and writhes in pain. Joel chapter 3 of the final judgment. The heavens and the earth quake. But, of course, there's much more in mind here than a physical trembling of the earth. The shaking that God is talking about here is a shaking that is spiritual. And we're led to see that when we see, I will shake all the nations. What we're being told here is that God is in charge of human history. Yahweh is saying to these, this, little, this little remnant of Jews here in Jerusalem, he's saying, you don't need to be intimidated by these people around you, by all the, the huge political powers a long way from you. You don't need to be intimidated by them because I shake them when I feel like it. I, I, I have them under control. To think of Psalm 2 that we had as a call to worship, the the Lord rules the nations with a rod of iron, and when he feels like it, he shatters them into pieces. That is the God that says to you, fear not. You, as a follower of Christ, need not fear because you have a fearful God. There is nothing Nothing that God will allow to touch your eternal soul. You may suffer in body and mind, but you have an omnipotent Heavenly Father. You have a Savior who rules the nations. You have the Spirit of God within you that gives life to dead sinners and strengthens them to do His will. So work 
Fear not, he says. And I'll shake all the nations, and what will be the result? Verse 7, the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Silver is mine, and gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. You think this temple looks like nothing, this temple you're trying to rebuild? You think because you don't have the, all the gold and silver that Solomon had to rebuild it, you, th you think that, that this isn't going to measure up? I'm telling you, this house is going to be more glorious than that first one. I can bring all the silver and gold of the nations here if I feel like it. This house will be a glorious house. And not only that, look at the end of our text, verse 9. In this place, I will give peace, shalom, says the Lord of hosts. This is the peace that is not just the absence of conflict for a few minutes, a temporary truce. No, no, this, when you read this word peace, shalom, in the Old Testament, you need to think in terms of, of complete well-being in every way. Be, being healthy in every way, be, being prosperous in every way, being reconciled with God and with one another, this, this is heaven. <laughs> so the Lord says, I'm going to... Fill this house with glory. You haven't even got it built yet, but I'm guaranteeing I'll fill it with glory. And in this place, I will give you peace because I am a God who shakes things and orders things as I will. A glory and peace to come in the rebuilt temple are in fact the revelation of a new covenant in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this in chapter 12. He goes back to that text in Exodus we were thinking about, where the ground shook when God established his covenant with Israel there at Mount Sinai. And probably has in mind our Haggai text as well. And he says, you in the new covenant have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. As awesome as that was, so terrifying, the people said to, to Moses, we don't want God to speak to us, it's too much, you go. And God actually says, that's a good idea. But even Moses said, I tremble with fear. The writer of Hebrews says, you've come to something even more awesome than that. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You are in a more awesome place than the temple right now. You're in the presence of God who dwells with his people. 
Therefore, he says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. As wonderful as it would have been to be a part of that remnant of Jews and to hear this message, that the rebuilt temple that you're working on so hard now will be glorified and be a place where God brings peace. How much more wonderful to stand on this side and know that glory and peace came into that temple when Joseph and Mary carried the baby Jesus into it. And when Jesus cleansed that temple. It wasn't the gold of Herod that made that second temple glorious. It wasn't all his redecoration, all his expansions. The glory and peace was in the person of Jesus Christ. And so there's the key. See, there's the key to, to knowing what our text is talking about here, the presence of God that gives you strength, presence that overcomes fear. It is being united with Christ, the glorious Prince of Peace. And what does that mean? How are you united with Christ? How does that happen, become a spiritual reality that then becomes the source of your strength, the source of your courage, the source of the strength to work, and the courage not to fear? Well, it's in believing that God has united you with Jesus Christ. You catch that? It's not making yourself good enough be united with Christ. It's simply on faith, accepting his word that he has united you with his son. And that in, in uniting you with Jesus Christ, that means that in his death, he paid for your sins. And you died to sin. So that it no longer is your master. And that in Jesus' resurrection, you are raised to walk in newness of life, to be a new creature in him. That is the gospel that we rest in, rejoice in. We don't try to add anything to it. It would be an insult to say that I need to add something to the work of Christ. To say that I need to do some kind of good works added to what Jesus has done, put that out of your mind. You could not and you should not try to add to the work of Jesus Christ. You should simply rest in that work. You simply receive what he's done for you and let him strengthen you. You're going to need it. You're going to need it this week. In the work that you've been called to do, you're going to need physical strength, emotional strength, mental strength, spiritual strength. 
You're going to need, at times, that courage to overcome fear. Not just fear of things, but fear within your heart. You have the promise of God. In the midst of that, remind yourself this week, I have the promise of God that he is with me. He has united me with Christ, and he will never forsake me. No matter how dark it may seem, no matter what trials I'm going through, you can know that he is with you. His strength is yours. His courage is yours. And he will work through you as you work for his glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we never outgrow our need uh, to hear the gospel. And so I pray, Lord, that it would take root afresh in our hearts and minds. Uh, strengthen us, Lord, uh, with your presence. Give us grace. And I pray that uh, if there's anyone who's not begun that walk of faith with you, that even today their hearts would be drawn to you, and they would find in you the hope and assurance of salvation. And for those of us who have already begun that walk, Lord, keep us on it. We, we, we don't want to stray, Lord, and so we pray the promise that you will keep us, that, that when we sin, you will be faithful and just to forgive us as we turn to you in repentance. That when we seek to do your will, you will strengthen us to do that will. So help us to live in that this week. In Jesus' name, amen.